This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Happy to welcome you all to another new episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. Um, and, you know, Marcus, I know that we both are hoping that uh, there will be is some consistency here in, in the rollout of some new shows. Um, you, we have such a huge repertoire of shows now that uh, I'm always appreciative of the feedback that we get uh, about what our favorite shows of, of our regular listeners and even new listeners. And I'm noticing that more people are actually discovering the show. I think you and I talked about that before, but we are happy to be back here again with you all to just uh, to kind of roll out another new episode of the show today. And Marcus, I don't know how things are going on your end. I think that they're going well. Uh, I, I do have to say and to let our listeners know that uh, I had the great opportunity to have you come down to visit this part of the state. I think it was uh, your first opportunity to come down here to Raleigh. You'll have to share with us at some point what you thought of the capital city here in North Carolina. But I'm glad to be, as always, to be back in here um, on, in recording another show with you, uh, to be here with the audience. And brother, so welcome. It's good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. It's, it's nice to be back. Um, I'm looking forward to today's show. I think that the um, the live show that we did previously um, as part of the Asheville Ideas Fest uh, <laughs> event was was rich and i've been uh chomping at the bit uh i'd say to, <laughs> to start to unpack some of what um some of what came up during that conversation with um the uh hbcu presidents um uh and so on and so forth and regarding the trip to to raleigh it was it was rich i mean i didn't uh i, I didn't realize that that raleigh was um so similar in terms of being so huge and spread out to Atlanta, where I lived for for more than a decade. So, um, yeah, I, I, that was a great experience. <laughs> I got I got much more than I bargained for as, as far as the sheer volume of driving and visiting different universities and sites and learning about Raleigh's history and your own personal history in Raleigh. So. But and I, it's a great experience. Yeah, great experience. And, and, and because <laughs> because my brother was visiting, he got me to even go. And I won't name the campus, but he got me to go to a campus <laughs> I ordinarily won't go to, um, you know. Uh, but he 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 drug me there, and we went. We had a good time. It was a good visit. But it was really good to have you here to give you an opportunity to kind of visit North Carolina's capital. Uh, Raleigh is is indeed uh, you know very spread out city. It seems to to continue to grow by leaps and bounds. The one thing that I know you recognized when you were here was the difference in the climate and um, and everybody you all have to know that I was constantly hearing from my brother there, but, but this is not like the mountains. This is not like Asheville. It's hot down here. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how quite how you survived that. Um, it's I, I, I was not expecting that. that it, the heat in Raleigh felt very much like the heat that I experienced while living in Atlanta. So, um, you know, heat that is offset by mountains is very different than heat that um, is just coming straight at you on what is basically flat land. So uh, anyone planning to visit Raleigh anytime soon, um, be sure that you're prepared for the heat and you have a gigantic water bottle with you. It is oppressively hot 
in Raleigh, Raleigh North Carolina. Well, thanks, Martin. <laughs> Once again, you you are not lying. It is hot. It, I think it's, you know, looking at the weather across the country lately has been, you know, kind of intense, which, mm-hmm. you know, begs another question at some point you and I need to talk about. I think that's one of the things that we haven't really talked about that much on the show, but it may offer an opportunity at some point to talk about climate and issues related to climate change. And there's a lot of conversations that are going on around that. And I think that this summer is, is inviting us to think about that more. Now, you did bring up here just a minute ago, and I do have to tell the audience to let them know. I, and I hope that you're not going to mind me uh, actually opening up this door and, and making this reveal. But I have to say this. That doing the show with Marcus, as all of you know, has been great. It's been a lot of fun. We get in here. The conversation just kind of unfolds naturally the way it does when we have conversations when we're on the phone or visiting each other uh, in our respective uh, houses. But the interesting thing is, is that uh, when it comes to the shows, you know, Marcus is kind of a, a natural talent. At this He just jumps in. Right. <laughs> uh, we, we, we plan these things out. And so as we were getting ready for that live uh, version of the show, that live recording, I was really sweating bullets over the thing. And my brother was calm, cool and collected until uh, we, you know, I actually came to Asheville and spent the night with Marcus the night before. And I recognized that um, there seemed to be a little sweating going on on his side. As well. <laughs> and I was deeply surprised by that. I said, well, I'm glad that you can um, kind of keep that to yourself. And I don't, see it um until that moment but it was um it was nice yeah. to get that revelation that you split this out a little bit too well you know i i, I try to i try to as you say uh remain cool calm and collected at all times but i guess i guess i guess what had me um a little bit worried was that uh first of all was that you know that was essentially our first physically live event right we we had done the show on reparations as a live event over zoom during the pandemic it was it was and it was and I, i'll say marcus it, it turned out to be a, a, an enjoyable experience it was fun um we're going to talk a little bit about that for this show because we were wanting to use the next new show that we were able to actually get together to do to kind of talk about some of the issues that that emerged out of that particular show we had a slew of questions that we were never able to really get to right. To talk about that or the topic of that show for those of you who may not have had an opportunity to hear it um and let me just say here that i'm grateful to hear the feedback that we did get from some members of the audience that day and then from some who have actually had an opportunity to listen to the recorded version of the show which was a, a a shortened version of it. And let me also take the time to thank Matt Bush, uh, who's our producer, for being there to produce that show and the team at Blue Ridge Public Radio to kind of help that uh, really unfold the way that it did. But Marcus, we had this whole list of questions. And but, you know, we were talking about the so-called renaissance uh, of HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities in the country. There were some important questions that came from the audience and one in particular that we, we may want to talk about here for a few minutes. But what was interesting, this was a program that was a part, as you have already said, 
that was a part of the larger programming around the Asheville Ideas Fest, which was the inaugural event around the Asheville Ideas Fest. We want to, to uh, just take a moment to congratulate UNC Asheville uh, for successfully hosting that event. You know, you and I, even after we had done the live version of the show, were out in Asheville walking. You know, we went for lunch, but we were running into people who were just talking about how rich the program that we actually did was, but even the night before our show, the uh, the night I think Fareed Zakaria was in town, he participated in that conversation. And Marcus, I got a note. I have to bring this in right now here that I got a note that night from someone who attended his talk at UNC Asheville, and they were mentioning that I think he referenced the Lexus took the Tocqueville at least three times in his speech. Mm-hmm. And so the note that I got from a friend, uh, Sophia Unger was saying, you know, if you're in the audience, I know that everybody has to be thinking about you now that he's referenced <laughs> Alexis to Tocqueville. And so once again, it gives me the opportunity to bring Alexis to Tocqueville <laughs> up in this conversation and to say once again, see, I told you everybody <laughs> is talking about Alexis to Tocqueville. Well, and, and you know, I, I think it I think it raises it begs the question, uh, why? Right? So so why are multiple what why is the Tocqueville's work, why is his insight into the American Democratic experiment? Mm-hmm. Um, being recognized now, um, especially now, as relevant, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think that really that really is the question. What did the Tocqueville see that other people may now be seeing and right. wanting to pay attention to as the country is sort of grasping uh, um, for to, to understand what its democratic future will will look like, right? And I think that. Um, Maybe what people are identifying, including Fareed Zakaria, um, is the fact that, you know, the Tocqueville seems to be on to something, for example, when he makes the point that um, uh, that uh, part of what defines America socially, culturally and politically is this kind of obsessive focus on the future. In a way that is disconnected from the past or disinterested in the past, and and maybe part of what what we can lift out of the Tocqueville's um, analysis is that um, imagining any democratic future, mm-hmm. right? Imagining any democratic future requires an ongoing conversation or relationship with the past, right? At the very least, mm-hmm. and so maybe that's part of what people are are realizing um, about where the country is now and about what the Tocqueville may have to say mm-hmm. about, about where we are now. So uh, I expect that the Tocqueville to continue to, to attract uh, attention, to continue to come up um, uh, in conversation. Uh, my, my critique of him does not go away, but, <laughs> but, but, but you know, I, I do think that um, his, his analysis, his general analysis of American democracy is relevant. All right. To yeah. what we're seeing now, and maybe that's why you know he's gaining more traction in popular conversation. Well, Marcus, I have to say, you know, as you bring him up here, that um, I was recently, as you know, in your home state of Ohio, um, didn't get a chance to go up to Dayton. I wish that I had, but I spent a few days in Cincinnati. 
And, you know, everybody who knows geographically where Cincinnati is located right there on the Ohio River, right across from Kentucky. I could not help but think about Alexis de Tocqueville while I was in Cincinnati, because if you read Democracy in America, one of the places where I think that he really kind of really uh, explores America, America's its history, what its future might look like is when he juxtaposes uh, a slave state to a free state, Ohio being the free state, Kentucky being the slave state at this, at that time, and being right there on the Ohio River. I mean, it. I couldn't help but think about Tocqueville and his juxtaposition of what he actually has to say. And as you bring up this issue, you know, his critique of America and America's development, you and I both know the one word that we, we, we don't discuss a lot. And I think that as we, you and I think about you know, the future of the show and some of the shows that we want to do, because you have raised the, the issue before uh, in, in a conversation in the past about American myths. And we want to talk about and explore some of the myths that make up uh, what we as a nation, how we see ourselves and think about it. Tocqueville, I think, addresses some of those. Um, but he also talks about the whole issue of capitalism and American version of, and the American version of capitalism and how it has influenced the development of this country. And I think how it continues to, because even in that conversation about historically black colleges and universities, you and I, we kind of began to kind of go there and talk about the influence of capitalism on American higher education and how we see education. Um, so maybe that will come up here. But what I also want to do, Marcus, before you jump back in here, is go ahead and let the audience know that we do have a guest with us today, a special guest that you all have been following the conversations that we have been having for a while around the Bill Friday Fellowship, the William Friday Fellowship for Human Relations. Um, and we have had some very interesting conversations with the most recent class of fellows, which that class is now has now concluded. Um, at some point, we want to kind of come back and talk a bit with some of those fellows. We have not talked with all of them. There's still some who are willing to kind of come back in and have conversations with you and I, Marcus, to talk about their experience in the fellowship and also about the work that they're doing across the state of North Carolina in their individual communities. I have, have uh, said before that it's sometimes easy to miss some of the fantastic work that is going on in individual communities because we become so focused on our own individual community. We we don't we have blinders on when it comes to the larger, you know, thinking about the state at large and what's going on in individual communities. So I want to continue those conversations with those fellows. But we have been kind of in partnership with them, having conversations with those fellows. We've also had conversations with Meredith Doster, who was the lead faculty member uh, this past uh, uh, two years for the most recent class. And we've had great conversations with Meredith. Meredith has become something of a feature on the show. But what we've not had an opportunity to do is to actually be in conversation with Mr. Hunter Korn, who is the director of the Wild Acres Leadership Initiative, of which houses the, the, the initiative itself houses the William Friday Fellowship uh, for Human Relations. We haven't had a chance to talk with Hunter, but Hunter is a faithful listener of the show. 
um, someone who's kind of been somewhat of an informal advisor to uh, advisor to you and I as we've thought about some of the things that we've wanted to do with the show. But we are able to get him to get him into the studio with us today. And Hunter is going to join this conversation. But I want to go ahead and introduce him to the audience because Hunter, I think, listened to that live version uh, of the show that we did uh, on HBCUs. And I know that Hunter has some perspective there as well. But Hunter, let me go ahead and just take a moment to welcome you to the show and to thank you for taking the time to join Marcus and I today. Thank you so much for your generous invitation. And uh, again, I want to acknowledge Dr. Meredith Dostra as the point of connection for all, all three of us here and her relationship with Dr. Harvey and Dr. Waters and then me and her leadership of the, the most recent class of the Friday Fellowship. <clears throat> it's a great, it's a great privilege to be here. And I am a faithful listener. It's, thank <laughs> <you so> <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Hunter. Thank you for being here. And I didn't want to delay in letting the audience know that you're here as our guest today. And we're going to talk a little bit in just a little while about not only the Bill Friday Fellow, the William Friday Fellowship and this most recent cohort, you know, which I had the privilege of working closely with you all through the past three years uh, with that group of fellows. And, and like we said, we've had them in conversation, a few in conversation here on the show. But um, we want to talk about the Wild Acres Leadership Initiative as well, that work. But you, you know, you had an opportunity to listen to the show uh, that we did on historically Black colleges and universities. So we don't want to not keep, allow you to kind of uh, uh, come into this conversation because you had some interesting uh, points of view, I think, on this. But as we think about this, that show and thinking about higher education in general, Marcus, I, and I want to throw it open to you about, you know, what were your thoughts? And Hunter, please chime in here, too, uh, where you feel comfortable chiming in. You know, Marcus, what, what was the larger take on that particular show uh, on that topic uh, about historically black colleges and universities and the so-called renaissance that is taking place right now? Yeah, well, for me, what one of the big takeaways had to do with really interrogating this language of renaissance, right? Um, what What is meant when, first, first of all, first of all, why are people saying that HBCUs are undergoing a renaissance now? Uh, and then secondly, what do they mean when they say that HBUs are undergoing a renaissance um, right now? And um, for me, throughout the conversation, Darren, I'm sure you will remember this, throughout the conversation that we had at that event, um, that, that language remained problematic for me, right? It remained problematic for me, um, mainly because uh, it was never clear. It was never clarified for me what what that term meant. <laughs> right. What does it mean? Um, are we talking about um, do, by, by Renaissance? Do we are we talking about white liberals who are suddenly interested in investing in HBCUs? Right. In response to, you know, for example, the death of George Floyd you know, a few years ago. Um, you know, what what are we talking about when we when we when we when we when we choose to describe um, an HBCU renaissance? Are we talking about more black students admitting to, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, applying to and being admitted to HBCUs than we've seen in previous years. What do we mean? Um, I will say, I will say though that uh, uh, despite that lack of clarity, there does seem to be um, a heightened recognition um, at the national level of the historical role played by HBCUs in this country 
particularly with respect to the African-American community. Um, and I think that's that's important to to recognize. Uh, but as as Darren sort of alluded to a moment ago, uh, part of what's challenging in this whole conversation, it was challenging for me um, at the at the Asheville Ideas event, is that you just simply can't talk about the history of HBCUs. You can't talk about this so-called HBCU renaissance without immediately talking about Amer- the role of American capitalism mm-hmm. um, in both of these things, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, for me, again, uh, one big takeaway was was really struggling with this language of renaissance. Um, is is it is what we're witnessing g- genuinely a renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it is it now fashionable? Is it now trendy? Is it now chic, uh, particularly for you know non-black Americans to publicly? care about HBCUs, to, to make these very public investments in the future of HBCUs, so on and so forth. Um, you know, and for me, when I think about uh, uh, the, this idea of Renaissance, I think about, I think about something that is, that is deeper than financial. I, I think about the Harlem Renaissance, you know, where we, where we really see a kind of, a kind of um, uh, vigorous, energy around uh um around culture around intellectual life around engagement with uh with larger social issues larger political issues right um energy around creativity art so on and so forth um that's how i think about renaissance i don't think about it in 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 these more sort of superficial terms and so um and so yeah uh, uh for me this was an opportunity to sort of trouble for the public, right? Uh, what this language of Renaissance means and to, to maybe get the public to, or invite the public to pause for a moment and think about why this language is being used. Mm-hmm. Is it appropriate? Is it accurate? Um, uh, and also, you know, what, what is motivating this, this, this sort of sudden interest in, in HBCUs uh, and their future in the country. So that was mm-hmm. a, one big takeaway for me. All right. Well, um, and Hunter, before you jump in, we just want to take one quick break here to remind you you're listening to the Waters and Harvest Show here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Watterson Harvey Show. Thank you for being here with us here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus and I kind of taken the opportunity to reflect upon the most recent show that we did, which was a live version of the Watterson Harvey Show, addressing the issue, the topic of the renaissance of historically black colleges and universities. Today we have with us as a guest, um, and we're going to be talking about the Bill Friday Fellowship, the William Friday Fellowship, in just a little while, but we have the director, Hunter Korn, who is here with us. Marcus just left us out. You know, we went out with uh, an important thought about that last show that we did about the renaissance, the so-called renaissance around historically black colleges and university is there. And is this kind of a troubled term that we're using? Hunter, thank you for being here again. We want to let you jump in because I know that you have some perspective on this topic as well. Yes, and uh, Marcus's remarks reminded me of a piece of the show there about uh, halfway in, about four or five minutes, I believe, after Chancellor Robinson of Winston-Salem State University spoke about 
I'll say the imprecision of language. Um, I don't think he used those words, but a piece of labeling liberal arts or a, mm. a critical studies or things like that and a modeling Winston-Salem State after UNC Asheville or something like that. Um, how the, the humanities or public humanities were a piece of engineering or STEM fields or what we call STEM fields today, but a commonality between those. And then I believe uh, Dr. Harvey spoke briefly about his personal experience in a at Morehouse mm-hmm. and uh, what that meant to him. Um, uh, the phrase belonging uncertainty stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, how transformative it was both as an undergrad, but then moving to a different place. Oh, right. To, and that was a, uh, that was a piece of, it reminded me of Bernice Johnson's Reagan's talk, um, coalition politics about how movement from nurturing uh, to a, a different place is a, is a key, and it's um, it's a valuable thing not to forget. And uh, of course, this was brought up with the Renaissance piece. Is it was it always there, or did anything ever go away? I'm not sure anything ever went away. You just look at it perhaps differently at different times. No, right. Yeah, so that right. that little segment is reminds me of that section of. Uh, the the HBCU conversation in particular, um, right? Yeah, and and that that's important. And that that was a point, if I recall, um, that was made by the president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, who's a philosopher, right? She was on she was on the panel. This point about belonging uncertainty, and there was a point. I, I thank you for raising that, Hunter, because it, it reminded me of a point that I didn't get an opportunity to make um, on the panel at the event, which uh, relates to something that James Baldwin actually said um, decades ago um, that I think is pertinent to understanding this 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 problem, really, this African-American problem of belonging uncertainty. And, and I think that, you know, as I said, as I said, uh, then, um, you know, this 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 is this is one of the issues uh, that Morehouse helped me most with, right? You know, what it, with thinking about this issue of belonging uncertainty as an African American male in this country and figuring out what it means to exist in this country as such. But Baldwin said uh, decades ago, I believe it might have been the 1950s or 60s, um, when he was sort of describing the uh the the experience of the black experience of race in the united states uh baldwin said that um and, and this also relates to some of those myths that you mentioned earlier right brother the, 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 mm-hmm. these some of the myths that shape the american experience right but one of those myths has to do with a belief according to baldwin among white americans that and i'm quoting him here that quote black people believe Black people belong where we put them, right? They belong where we put them, right? Um, not that they don't belong where they want to be. They belong where we put them, mm-hmm. right? And I think that really, I think Baldwin right there brilliantly captures this this problem of belonging uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does it mean to exist where someone else has placed you? Right. Regardless of your own sense of self, regardless of your own um, hopes, aspirations, regardless of your own visions, uh, your own vision for your life. uh, What does it mean to exist within that sort of anxiety ridden space of of essentially being displaced by someone else? Mm -hmm. And and that's what and that I think is America's story vis-a-vis black people. Right. Um, Engineering a society that routinely devises ways to displace them, right? So that um, 
so that so that African Americans are, are are constantly struggling to find ways to place themselves to emplace themselves um, uh, uh, in resistance to or or in opposition to to how they have been uh, socially situated. So so yeah, I mean that's that I think is one of the uh, primary. Uh, uh, functions that HBCUs have served historically mm-hmm. within the black community. Um, I will say though, brother, kind of again, we cannot get away from capitalism, can we? Um, no. and, and, and I mean, you know, because w- once you look at the early history of HBCUs, you see that 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 the educational strategies tended to revolve around um, uh, vocation, right? You know, mm-hmm. h- how how can we train African Americans to carve out and eke out an economic space for themselves, right, in American society, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, almost in kind of a, a Washingtonian sense, right? Not that right. everybody embraced Washington's philosophy, mm-hmm. but, right? And in this sense, we're, we're talking about Booker T. Washington. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so, you know, uh, placing, one's, placing oneself, oneself in American society socioeconomically has, has, has always been, um, a major concern, I think, a major pedagogical concern, a major curricular concern um, in HBCUs historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, you know, um, where one places oneself in American society has 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 to do with much more than just that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so it's it, it's a it's a very complex. It um, is. It's a very complex issue that you we're, that you we're dealing with. Yeah, Marcus, yeah. both you and Hunter, you've touched on two things, well, a number of things that are really important here. And I think this may be a good bridge to even talk about um, the work of the William Friday Fellowship for Human Relations, because, you know, the key one of the key words there in the title of that fellowship to me is human. Right. And we we did talk about the role of the humanities, you know, what these colleges and universities. So we had three uh, HBCU chancellors uh, here in North Carolina as a part of that conversation. Uh, Dr. Harold Martin uh, at A&T, Dr. Robinson, uh, who is at Winston-Salem State University and the chancellor of North Carolina Central University, Akinleye, I think I pronounced his, I hope that I pronounced his, his name right. But, you know, and A&T has grown by leaps and bounds, is on the verge of becoming an R1 uh, institution, not too far away from uh, getting, uh, achieving that status. It's the largest HBCU in the country um, and has a very uh, real uh, mission focus on STEM subjects. But we did talk about the humanities and the role of the humanities. And so I want to come back to that if we can here in a minute, because I think it it's um, will help facilitate the conversation around the William Friday Fellowship and this most recent class. But points that you brought up, brother, and that you brought up as well, Hunter, are, you know, number one, Marcus, what what is the value of intellectual life in America? I think we need to have a, a conversation around that, um, it, there, you know, and thinking about higher education in its role, what what. What should it be doing? Um, is there a rebirth in general uh, of interest around higher ed? And is education becoming seen once again as a gateway to a fuller and, you know, I don't want to just say successful life, but to a fuller to a fuller 
human experience, experience as a human being. So what is the value of intellectual life in America? This sense of belonging, um, because you and I talked about the number of articles that are being written right now about this growing interest in HBCUs. I think just June 11th, there was a big article in the New York Times about this and people saying, okay, it's four years of actually feeling like a family that you're a part of a family. So there's a sense of belonging that these spaces actually give to students of color. And so that really raises questions about what we're doing at the elementary, the secondary, and the high school level. Are people losing a sense of of, of belonging uh, during those years? And it has to be reclaimed when they go to a college and university. Um, And I hope that makes sense. But I think that there's a larger conversation around how we do education. So, and Hunter, you brought up that issue of belonging, which I think was a big piece of what we tried to to do in the most recent cohort of of Friday Fellows, which is a big component of the Friday Fellowship. And also, Marcus, I think, you know, we need to ask ourselves, are we just economic beings? Is that the only thing that we're good for? Um, And it brings us back around to the humanities. So, Hunter, if I could use that as a segue to talk about the 2020-22 class of William Friday Fellows uh, who just ended their time together, I can't believe how quickly that two-year period went. But I think the last um, the last uh, gathering of the class was back in May, um, I think back in May, and we were able to gather uh, at, in Little Switzerland up at the Wild Acres uh, Retreat, and I hope that you can tell us a little bit about the history of that space. But Hunter, you know, What's your perspective on this past class? Because I think that if I'm not wrong here, my take on that experience was that it was to try to develop a sense of belonging among these particular fellows. How successful do you feel we were in achieving that with this particular class? And why is that important? Absolutely. That, that's the goal. I think that's always been the goal uh, since I've been around for a couple of classes, but always the Friday Fellowship, I think that's been um, relationship is going to go, human relations in particular. If you go up to Wild Acres Retreat in Little Switzerland, the uh, sign there says dedicated to the betterment of human relations. And so Wild Acres Leadership Initiative is a program of Wild Acres Retreat, and therefore we are born of that mm-hmm. for the betterment of human relations. And the Friday Fellowship is, again, a program of that. So this, it is our genealogy. It is our goal. And uh, you can't divorce that from time. As you were speaking about both Dr. Harvey and Dr. Lauder, you're talking about how much time and not just labor hours or what, where do you spend your economic quote-unquote worth or GDP that's sometimes measured in America, but where, where do you spend your time? Someone once told me, um, asked me this question, what is your relationship with slow? Mm. And that, that has stuck with me. And uh, as a retreat center at Wild Acres Retreat, the place has no screens, no clocks, no electronic devices. Wi-Fi is spotty at best, or, you know, reception is spotty at best. So literally to retreat, and Darren, when you and I went to Columbia and Terrell County and the far east of the state, it was a similar thing. You you retreated. You went away. (laughs) You got away. Reception was tough. (laughs) It was, uh, you were on the south part of the Albemarle Sound, and it felt, you felt away. So what do we talked about rest and reflection? So if you can rest, can you reflect? But again, you can't get away from COVID. And 
how did that impact people virtually? Y'all have talked about this a lot with your show, and it's, certainly you're both instructors and teachers, and you've done this with your classes. But can you retreat at home? And what is the metric for that? Is it time alone in a room, or is that really retreating? Do you feel like you're away? Or is it walking around your, near your home that you, if you're for comfortable to do that? Right. So can you measure those things? I'm not sure. One one constant in the Friday Fellowship has been um, Leadership on the Line, a book by Heifetz and Linsky, published by the Harvard Business Review Press. And you might not, I wouldn't expect to find this type of quote in a book published by the Harvard Business Review Press, but in chapter 10 of that book called Leadership on the Line, there's a section called The Myth of Measurement. And it is a, it is a uh, reminder that mission is not something we do to others. It is something we also do with community work. Mm. It was, not it's inwardly focused and uh to the effect if you don't uh, you don't just have to make measurements for other folks but if you save one soul you save the world yeah. and this is a uh, a different type of way of quantifying things and a, re- a reminder that perhaps uh, goals in life aren't quite quite what a business model might show you and that that chapter 10 matter of fact i, I tell people often you have the second edition it's on page 212 often <laughs> just go to that section and it reminds me of what to do hunter thank you for that perspective mark and marcus there's again going back to one of the points i think that that hunter has made here and i want to hear from you as well as we think about human relations humanities we use this term a lot we raise that question um in the course of that conversation about the renaissance of hbcus did you get a satisfactory answer uh, to that. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on that because, you know, Hunter is bringing up here what we talked a lot as in the conversations that we were in, that we the shows that we've done with Friday Fellows so far, um, the conversations that we did with Dr. Doster, with Meredith Doster. We were talking about this kind of four prong focus that the, the last cohort of Friday Fellows had, which was around the words relationship rest, reflection, and reckoning. I hear Hunter using the word retreat, retreating from. I like to think, Marcus, as a person who is, you know, has a degree in philosophy, history is a philosophy, philosophical component to that, that I like to look at the educational process and the ongoing educational process for me as a retreat. It's a retreating away and a reflection did you feel that you got a good answer to our questions about what these institutions are doing to really promote the importance of the humanities? And should that be what higher education is focusing on? Should we see, should we see higher education um, as, a, as kind of a, a, a larger model of what the, the Friday Fellowship seeks to do in a much smaller fashion with a, a certain group? 22, 23, 24 yeah. fellows at a time to retreat, to reflect, to to kind of continue the process of education. I hope that question is yeah, sensible. I think so. Yeah. Um, I would say not really. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there were there were um, points made, and I'm, I'm thinking here, uh, what comes to mind for me uh, as well is th- this kind of dialectic between the the STEM focused approach to education and then the more humanities liberal arts focused approach. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, you know, um, A&T, North Carolina, North Carolina A&T being 
really kind of one of the big STEM schools represented or the big STEM school represented um, on panel by uh, by Chancellor Chancellor Martin. Um, I think that there's part of what I took from the conversation is that um, there's so much pressure placed upon um, universities and colleges to um, to really sort of commodify the educational experience that that they're delivering to students, right? Um, to commodify that product um, in ways that I think may actually work against what you're describing, Darren, right? Mm-hmm. This 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 process of retreating um, in order to undergo a certain kind of more holistic development, a more holistic intellectual development that is not reducible really to a kind of capitalist outcome where what is produced is essentially a useful worker bee or somebody who, mm-hmm. um, you know, who, who thinks of, 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 their, of life, of, of their social existence purely in entrepreneurial terms. Right, but not in in philosophical terms or, or anything like anything of that nature. And so, um, you know, I, I think as 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 leaders of, of of institutions of higher education who are struggling with this pressure, right? Even even in the HBCU context, um, you know, I, I didn't hear much much. Um, I didn't hear much reflection on what it means to to, to reimagine education in terms of, for example, of, uh, especially in HBCU context, in terms of a process of helping students figure out how they belong and where they belong. Right? I mean, it may have been implicit, may have been implicit, but I, I don't think that I don't think that that that, that mission was made explicit enough. Mm. And, and, it, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not blaming our panelists, but I'm just saying you know, that that might have been a function of time constraints, may have been a function mm. of, of how the conversation was, was constructed, of the kinds of questions that were asked. But, but yeah, um, I, I think that, that that itself is a separate conversation, right? Mm. Um, what, is the, what, is the, what is the role of higher education in late modernity today? What is the role? Um, is it is it is it even about anymore? This kind of retreat in order to discover how one belongs, or is it really about um, something that is that is more fundamentally economic? Mm-hmm. Right. We, we really are training, you know, we really are training students to be economically productive, mm-hmm. and and everything else is just you know um, is secondary, tertiary, um, or or even lower. Um, on our list of priorities. And so I think this is the question that is a kind of specter and will haunt us for some time. You know, what is the role of American higher education in late modernity? Um, and what is and what is its relationship to American capitalism? Mm-hmm. Well, again, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey show here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back in a moment. Again, you're listening to the Waters and Harvest Show here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Uh, we are talking about uh, reflecting on the, the conversation that we had uh, uh, surrounding the Renaissance or the so-called Renaissance of historically Black colleges and universities, and we're linking that to the ongoing conversations that we've had 
about the William C. Friday Fellowship and the work of the fellowship. We have here again with us as a guest today, Mr. Hunter Korn, who is the director of the Wow Acres Leadership Initiative, which houses the William C. Friday Fellowship. And I think we found a clever way here, Marcus, to kind of link these two conversations because I had the opportunity to work with, and Hunter, we want to bring you back in again here to work with the William Friday Fellowship for the past two years. And it really was an educational process. It seemed to me that what we were trying to do is really unlearn some things and actually try to relearn how to be in community with each other, how to be in relationship with each other, that that is not a process that happens quickly. In economic America, our capitalist America, we want everything to happen very quickly, very fast. Um, So that has kind of bled over, I think, Marcus, if I'm hearing this conversation in my mind right, that that has bled over into how we actually do higher ed in some ways. And it it has actually led to kind of a decreasing emphasis on the humanities. But that actual Ideas Fest, I think, really talked a lot about the humanities. There was a major focus on the humanities. Um, They had Fareed Zakaria, who was one of the speakers. Fareed, as many of you in the audience may know, uh, one of his last books was In Defense of a Liberal Education. And I know that that word liberal is not a popular word. Um, We don't use it as much. But what he's talking about there is not kind of liberal political ideology, but we're talking about the liberal arts, uh, the humanities, that field. Hunter, I want to come back to the Friday Fellowship. Two years uh, this class was together. It had the challenge of having to to actually be conducted in the middle of COVID, that created some some of its own challenges. Um, but you know, you as the director of the Wow Acres Leadership Initiative and overseeing this work, were you? How did you feel about how this cohort turned out, even with the challenges that COVID created? But how well do you think we actually did with focusing on these issues? around the construction and the building of really meaningful relationships, especially across lines of difference, which I think the humanities is really supposed to help us with. I think we did a wonderful job, and particularly Meredith Duster, of documenting the curricular experience that she's done, which is about, you know, it's over 400 pages on our website. You can, mm-hmm. It's downloadable as a creative com- as an open educational resource or a creative commons license. The documentation of how to relate in this moment or what we did when if you remember, you could be in only rooms of 10 or be outside. And how did you adapt to things? What were your mm-hmm. thoughts when you were adapting? As you're both uh, a scholar of history here and a scholar of religious studies, and how how did people adapt at a time when? Mm-hmm. And here's documentation of when we adapted at a time when. And I, I want to dovetail on something that Marcus said um, about transformation and education. And the history of the site at Wadacres Retreat in Little Switzerland is extraordinarily transformative and it's a model of both what we continue to try to do the the place was owned by thomas dixon in the 1920s virulent racist and the author of uh the clansman which was turned into the birth of nation by dw griffith and then he lost it all in in a, a, the crash in 29 and eventually in bankruptcy was bought very cheap by um by happenstance and an almost miraculous transaction from the blumenthal family but Thomas Dixon was selling off lots to Marx's points of capitalism for approximately $1,000 in those days. And, and now 
once it was acquired by the Blumenthal family and was uh, went through history in 30s and 40s, it is it is a nonprofit retreat conference center that is not there to make money. It's it's mm-hmm. there to it doesn't they don't want to lose money, but it's not its goal is not to sell off lots and to therefore profit. They don't have shareholders or profits or things. It's there for educational tra- transformation of both the arts, you know, musical arts, relational arts, pottery, things like that. But also people can go there and folks, you know, folks in the audience can call them up and email them and say, are you available? Open. They're open seasonally, not in the winter. But it's a, it's a form of a, a gift that came, a gift that came to this family turned around and gifted it back. And they're stewarding it. And they placed a conservation easement on the majority of the land but they were stewarding as a part of the gifting, what I would call the gifting economy. And the program that I run, I would call it trust-based philanthropy. They give us quite a long leash to do what we did during the coronavirus pandemic. The the board and the, the staff, you know, they gave me and Meredith and you, Darren, like we, we were pretty free to do what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. They trusted the community running it to do what we had to do to, get, to make things work. And it was a, um, I considered quite a model of uh, this gifting or sharing economy of the change that we want to see in the world. And uh, taking Marcus's point about strict capitalism, um, this is a model that I I am very proud to be a part of Mm -hmm. in my career as a nonprofit manager. And so, Hunter, if you can tell, you know, Marcus, excuse me, I'll let you jump back in here. now, the the William Friday Fellowship itself as a program of Wild Acres um, has been in existence now, I guess, for 25 years, right? This is 25 years, um, a big group of people who've come through this. In fact, just earlier this morning, I heard from one of the past members uh, of Fellows, uh, who Dr. Uh, Miss Dorothy Maxwell, who is the current president, the state president of uh, the NAACP here in the state of North Carolina. Uh, That's right. Who was also a fellow. um, And she talks glowingly about that experience and and what it meant. Um, What I would like to ask you and then Marcus, let you jump in here to give you a chance to address this here. So now that this cohort has ended, what's next? I mean, what is next for Wild Acres and what's next for the William Friday Fellowship? Well, the um, certainly the, the Friday Fellowship is the signature program and it will continue in some form or fashion as you experience with me, <laughs> as the class <laughs> members know, and anyone can see on our website uh, who accesses the document. It was adapted radically, like everybody else has adapted radically the past three years. Mm-hmm. And what what level of adaptation will come next is remains to be seen, but there will be some form of a class. And uh, we're still working on that, but watch our website and social media channels, FridayFellowship.org, for when that timing may come in the late fall of 2022. Right. And I'm and I'm really interested in in hearing and continue to continuing to see that ongoing work, because as we've talked about HBCUs here and higher education uh, in general here in this conversation. And we have, as we Marcus, as you know, in the conversations we've been in with Friday Fellows mm-hmm. and with Meredith Doster, we've talked about what what can the larger society learn from the work that the William Friday Fellowship and that Wild Acres is doing? How how can that work be translated to the larger society? And Marcus, specifically thinking about higher education, because higher education, we're having major conversations about uh, around what the future of higher ed is and. Re- reforming higher education, you know, what can, you know, 
possibly we take from the model that uh, Wild Acres uses in this program, the William Friday Fellowship, how can some of that translate to what is happening in the world of higher education, if that makes sense. But let me yeah. let you jump in. No, I, I, I would just say quickly something that uh, came to mind to me as as, as Hunter was talking about um, the Friday Fellowship and the Wild Acres organization um, ha- has to do with this this problem. And I, and I think this is really a, a problem that it may, it may be unique to um, the American experiment, to American capitalism. Um, but there's it seems to me that there's a way in which um, the the practice of capitalism, um, both in the educational sphere and in the broader economic sphere, um, it, it sort of requires an unlearning of community, right? You, you unlearn community uh, because your focus is, is on everything other than community, right? You're focused mm-hmm. on these, you're focused on um a kind of individualized acquisition of capital. You're focused on a, a particular um, organization that is that is also geared towards the acquisition of capital, right? And so I think that, um, and you know, in a society defined by that kind of goal, that kind of energy, um, you know, community as a practice can be lost altogether, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that you know, um, uh, programs like the Friday Fellowship Program becomes a kind of alternative space mm-hmm. where, where, where people can come together and relearn the practice of community, mm-hmm. right? And to, to make the connection to HBCUs, I think what, what what was unique about that experience to me as someone who, who went to who went to HBCU for undergrad and to uh, PWIs for, for graduate school um, is that at least, you know, speaking for Morehouse, Morehouse was very intentional about making a kind of practice of community part of the rigorous mm-hmm. academic experience, mm-hmm. right? You, you, could, you couldn't do one without the other. The, the two were married together whether you liked it or not, right? Mm-hmm. And, there were, and there were certain rituals that were sort of built into that process that I won't go into now because we're out of time. But, uh, but, the, but that, 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 that practice of community was very explicitly ritualized at Morehouse College in a way I think that that I've never seen in any other in any other um, um, higher educational setting, and so you know, I, I think that you know, one one practice maybe that could be um, imported maybe into into PWIs has to do with the importance of of relearning community. What kinds of what kinds of of structures can be can be built that are conducive uh, to helping students relearn um, community. Um, uh, and also to helping students um, realize that, you know, in many cases they've been estranged from the from, from themselves, right? They 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 falling they falling and in, in, they they have fallen into a kind of disrelation um, with themselves, right? A kind of self estrangement that requires uh, that makes it even more urgent, I think, a kind of practice of community with self and also with others. And so I think that's right. that's one point of connection that we can make here, perhaps. Right. Marcus, I deeply appreciate that. You know, and one of the things I would just add to it, I mean, that was a brilliant thought is is how can they build community and, and especially how can that be done in in predominantly white institutions if that is truly occurring on our HB that if that's happening on 
HBCU campuses. It's important to kind of take that model to the larger institutions, uh, predominantly white institutions, um, and doing this across lines of difference. Because what I know that we've been witnessing in higher ed is something that the Bill Friday, the William Friday Fellowship has tried to explode is to not have us going on into our own individual little groups where we're comfortable, but coming outside those spaces and learning across lines of difference. Well, again, the time just goes really fast on this. Hunter, I am so glad that you were able to join us. Is there one final thought that you want to have here for our listeners before we end this particular conversation? I'm deeply appreciative for the model of conversation, camaraderie, and difference that this you have here. This is a great thing. You can hear your camaraderie, and you can hear your difference and your opinion, and that's okay. great. Well, Hunter, thank you so much. I, again, want to thank you for the opportunity to have worked with you and Meredith, uh, and I want to thank the Bloomingthal, Bloomingthal family for the commitment that they have made to the work of Wild Acres and to the work of the William Friday Fellowship. And thank you for your commitment to continuing that program. Marcus, any final thought from you here before we before we exit this show? Well, I, I was just struck by a point that Hunter made um, uh, earlier. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but th- this idea of retreating in order to belong, mm-hmm. uh, I think, is is very um, is very profound, and it's something that I want to chew on a bit more. This idea okay. of retreating and retreating in order to discover a sense of belonging. Well, thank you, brother. Again, Marcus and I want to remind you all that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter, or you can write us at WHShow at BPR.org. And I know Marcus and I both hope that you all are finding the opportunity to retreat yourself and actually have that opportunity to reconnect with yourself and those around you. And we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Take care. Take care.